exactly. And out of that, you can see how they get atonement out of that. But we're going to keep that in mind, atonement and cover, because we kind of get, I mean, we were talking about the Passover. So what did they do? They took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the doorposts and the lentils. So the blood of the lamb covered the people inside. Okay, so just remember that because we're going to talk about that a little bit, obviously. Um, so Yom Kippur actually means day of covering. And the rabbis believe um, that this was the day that Moshe came down from the mountain for the last time. Remember two weeks ago or whatever it was, he went up the mountain eight different times. But the last time was the time he came down with the new tables, right? The ones that he had to cut and that the Lord engraved with his finger. And he brought those down because of course he broke the first tables due to the golden calf incident, uh, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago when I showed you the golden calf on Wall Street. Right. So that's, the, you know, okay. Um, so this is the day they claim that Moshe came down from the mountain with the tables of stone. So you can see why they're putting um, this day of atonement and they celebrate that event because that's the event that Moshe brought, you know, brought the Torah, brought the 10 commandments, brought the word of the Lord down. So that is our covering. Um, so that's how they, they put it all together. Um, Moshe, remember, he broke the first tables, came down, ground up the calf, made everybody drink it. You know, there was a little foldy roll that went on there. And then he went back up the mountain. And why did he go back up the mountain? To seek forgiveness for the people, right? Well, he received that forgiveness after 40 days or so. And again, that's what we're celebrating at Yom Kippur is that forgiveness that the Lord gave his people when he probably shouldn't have. Remember, he was going to destroy them all and start a whole new deal with Moshe. And he said, no, 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 no. If you destroy them, destroy me too. You know, I'm not going without them. I know they're jerks and they're stiff necked and, but still that's all we've got. Let's go with it. So he did. Um, and it's interesting to consider the, the whole story, right? Moshe went up, the Lord said, you better get, get thyself back down there because your people are doing stuff, you know, wrong. So he came down and the people had thought Moshe had been gone for 40 days. And they said, well, as for this Moshe, we, we don't know what happened to him. We thought he was never going to come back. So they started their own deal. And I was thinking about that in light of Yom Kippur and him going up and seeking forgiveness and getting forgiveness and coming back down. And that's what the rabbis celebrate. Um, but I was thinking about the golden calf. You know, and Moshe had been gone for 40 days. I guess that's too long to wait, right? Most people are not going to wait for 40. I guess that's, you know, we wouldn't wait for 40 days. But I thought about that in terms of what most Christians and most churches do. And it's kind of the same thing is, you know, the, the, the people sought, they built a golden calf as this is the God who led you out of Egypt, Aaron says. Well, clearly it was not. But and, and, they, and they weren't worshiping a, a false God or a different God. They were honoring the correct God. I mean, there's no question that their heart was in the right place. They just did it completely wrong. And they didn't listen to the words about, you know, thou shalt not make any graven idols and all that stuff. And when you think about the church today, it's like, uh, what became of this Moshe guy? You know, they, 
they don't know anything about the Torah. They make their own paths, just they make their own golden calves in a sense. And we worship the way we want to worship, just like the people were doing then. So uh, to me, it makes perfect sense that this would be the celebration of Moshe coming down. But, um, you know, when we consider the Kafar or Kapur, um, we've been taught to think that we're all covered by the blood of Yeshua, and that's what saves us. And you've heard people say, we've got a friend who every time we pray at dinner or whatever, you know, we'll say amen. And he goes, and the blood of Christ. Okay. Well, what does that mean exactly? You know, and most people, at least in America, or at least in American churches, um, believe that it's the blood of Christ that saved us. Right? I mean, does anybody have a problem with that? Yeah, there's a problem with that. Um, this is this is one of these Bible studies that will push people just too far over the edge and they will often leave in disgust because when you read the Bible, which I, I get it, most people don't. Uh, and most pastors apparently don't because they couldn't teach the things they teach if they actually read the book. But uh, Kafar is to cover, not to atone. And when you think about the two two ideas covering and atoning you think of atoning and it has um, serious mournful um, somber implications right it's atoning for our sins and they the jews certainly and we as 21st century christians think think that you know atonement is this you know we have to be respectful and mournful and quiet and and all that stuff but when you talk about to cover there's a certain amount of joy that comes along with that. There's thankfulness and joy, and it's a totally different, different deal. So uh, to a Jew, Yom Kippur is, is the very last deal before the judgment. If you're not square with God before Yom Kippur, it's too late. You know, so of course it's somber and mournful and, you know, they have to carefully consider and, they do all the things that they do. But to a believer, that same event standing right at the door before judgment is a joyful, thankful, it's, it's, it's what we all hope for, you know, that tomorrow would be that day, right? We'd be standing at the, at the door of judgment because it would mean, you know, we're out of this place. So it kind of depends on, um, well, it depends on what you believe, I guess. Now, there's a lot of people that would would be joyful about it, only to find they're like the five virgins and the door is shut. So that's that's a whole whole different deal. But I think this thing, this this day of atonement thing, it just sets the wrong tone from the get go, because standing at the door of judgment to meet the Lord is not a bad thing. I mean, you you, you know. Most of us would be cartwheeling and trying to get through the door. And, you know, it's, it's a good thing. So just consider it that way. Um, and you remember that the words of scripture, all the words of scripture are a, like, it's like a love letter that Yeshua has written to us or Yahuwah has written to us. And it's, it's written to us. It's written to the, to the wheat 
so that we don't look like the tares. It's not written to the tares so they try to become wheat. It, it's, it's written to us. It's not written to the world or to the unsaved. Or Now, these words and these ideas and things contained in the book and in the letter are, are the way that the unsaved in the world become saved. But it's not written to them. It's written to us. And he's written to us to tell us to quit acting like tares. Um, so this book contains all the information, you know, we, we, we need to become a child of God. And the Tanakh is, and we've said this before, and the Bible says this a hundred times, is, is a circular document. And I don't mean circular like mindless. I mean circular like a rampart. And all the walled cities had you know, what they call a rampart around the top. And if you start, say you're standing over the main gate into the city and you walk all the way around the rampart, you end up in the same place you started, right? And scripture is always like that. What happened in the beginning is telling you what's going to happen at the end. So as we're walking around the rampart of the city, you're up above the city, looking down, looking off into the distance. And of course, this idea in scripture of your looking in the distance of time, you know, we see things and learn things that haven't happened yet. And certainly that was the case with the Messiah coming crucified, raising from the dead, he would come back again the second time. And those are the, the things that we're still looking at off in the distance, but we're on the rampart at the top of the city. And the view is, you know, clear and magnificent. So as we go around the city, on these ramparts during our lives, we keep getting the same message and we keep seeing the same sort of thing, just with different people and different events. And, but it's always the same message. And that's, um, you know, that's, that's the way the word of God is. And if you remember the word in Hebrew is devar and in, in, in Hebrew, or at least in Middle Eastern cultures, the word, any word, is always considered true, especially the word of God is always considered true. And it wasn't until the father of lies came and learned to twist the words to make them false. But up until that point, Devar always meant the true word. And, you know, John later says that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the Devar was God. So it's the same, it's the same thing. Okay, so what's with all the goats? Um, the celebration of Yom Kippurim, and it's, it's never actually singular in scripture. It's, it's always Kippurim. It's a, it's a, it's a plural. Uh, one of the main features of the event are the two goats. So you have two cute little goats, like we saw, maybe not quite that little. And one of them is called the Lord's goat. And one of them is called the Azazel. And the Azazel, and they, you know, they pick straws to determine which go to switch. It's not, you know, one is good and one is bad. They just pick straws. And so the Azazel is the one that they symbolically lay their hands on and they put all the sins of the nation for that year on the Azazel. And then they tie a red ribbon on it and they send them out into the wilderness. That's how they get rid of their sins. And it's interesting, I guess, if, if you think it through, um, that the sins are dealt with by sending them away. 
They're not dealt with by a blood sacrifice. It's the other goat. There's a goat and a bullock that are sacrificed and their blood is used. But the sins of the nation are put on the Azazel and it's sent away. So when we think of a, um, a sacrifice to, again, you know, we're taught from the earliest ages, I understand, in Sunday school, that it's the blood of Christ that takes away your sins. It's the blood of Christ that, that uh, makes it possible for you to be in heaven. And those are two different things. One's correct and one's not. The, it's, it's not the blood, and I know this sounds heretical to all Christians, it's not the blood that takes away your sins. And one of the first places you see that is at Yom Kippur, because they put the sins of the nation on the Azazel, and they send it away. So let me read to you from Vaikra, Leviticus, um, chapter 16, verse 16. And he shall make an atonement, a kapoor, for, for the holy place, because of the uncleanliness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do with the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth against them, uh, that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So he's making an atonement for the holy place. His, his blood is cleaning the tabernacle of the congregation that remains in the midst of them. And you see this really in several places in scripture that the blood sacrifice is to clean the temple. It's not to clean you and I. Our sacrifice, our sin sacrifice is not made that way. So why do we get this idea that the, it was the blood of Christ that took away our sins? I'm a little confused um, when you're talking about the, the blood. Are we talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament? What's well, the same thing? It's one book. It's no different. No, but it's, it, is, it is different. No, it's not. It's the same information. It's exactly the same information. So what we say or what we've been taught is typically that Jesus was on a cross and shed his blood and it's his sacrifice took away our sin. Is that, I mean, am I wrong? Is that not how most people understand it? Okay, but read the Bible. It doesn't say that. You don't start at the beginning. I mean, I typically start a book at the beginning and read it to the end. I don't usually start in chapter 36 and read it to the end. It's all the same book. And that's the whole point of, you know, that the worst page in the Bible is the one that separates the Old and New Testament because there, there is no Old and New Testament. When all of the disciples were talking about uh, the truth of the word and how you can use it for correction and reproof and all the things they said about the word, what were they talking about? The Torah. Because there was no New Testament. Right? Mm -hmm. All the New Testament is, is the story of 12 guys 
living out the quote unquote Old Testament in the real world. So they lived the things they knew to be true. And when all, you know, anything you can read in the New Testament about the word is the Torah, because there was no New Testament when they were alive. They couldn't have been talking about it, right? Do you disagree with that? Well, I'm, I'm just a little confused on, on the usage of, of saying that the blood of Christ was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And then you go back to Leviticus, Christ wasn't even alive in spirit. No, but this is, well, he was, but this is a picture, just like Passover. He wasn't there for Passover, but the lamb was sacrificed to provide we think for the sin of the people, but that's not what happened, right? You, the blood was on the doorpost and we say, oh, the blood covered the people. Well, what did it do? Did it take away their sins? No. What it did was it allowed them to go free. It allowed them to go to the promised land. And that's what I, the, the, the case I'm going to make here is, uh, that's what the blood did in the temple. It cleansed the temple to give us access to be saved. It didn't save us. It gave us the access to be saved, right? So when Yeshua was on a cross and he died, what happened? There was uh, an eclipse. There was an earthquake. The veil was torn, right. To do what? To give us access. To give us access to the promised land. The same thing that the blood over the doorposts and the lintels did. That didn't cleanse anyone's sin. And that was the blood of the lamb, right? And it was on the, the day that he would be crucified. And three days later, he would be on the feast of uh, first fruits. He would raise again. So it's all prophetic of, you know, you say he wasn't here. I mean, he, he clearly was here, but it was prophetic of his coming as a man on those very days. So when you start thinking about what really happened, um, you're hard pressed to find in scripture that his blood covered our sin, because that's not how you make a sin offering. That's how you cleanse the temple to allow us access. So when Jesus died, Yeshua died, the, tent, the, the veil was broken, was ripped to give us access, and the temple was cleansed. Does that make sense? No? A little, some, okay, let's go on. Um, the, the, the word teshuva, or shub, which means return in Hebrew, is this uh, is always the picture, always, always, always the picture. And that's what we do. We couldn't go into a polluted temple because God's not there. Remember, he left. He had, had Moshe and the boys build him a house, and he was there. He, he was there with them. He lived with, that was his desire. That's his, been his desire since the first word of scripture, is to dwell with his people. And then we broke the covenant and he left. So he was no longer there. 
So the temple needed to be cleansed. And once it's cleansed, then we have access to God again. But the blood didn't cleanse us, it cleansed the temple so that we would then have access to him at the temple. Right? We ha- we still had to when you when when the Exodus generation was in Egypt, the Lord had you put blood all over the doorposts and the lentils. And through that, he was able to allow his people to leave if they wanted to. And we focus on how many Egyptians left when the Hebrews left because they wanted to follow that God. They didn't want to stay following the Pharaoh's gods. But we don't focus on how many Hebrews stayed in Egypt. And there were some that stayed because they didn't want to go or they didn't believe. Or, you know, you you look at Cecil B. DeMille. Remember Dathan? (laughs) He didn't want to go. Dathan's daughter's boyfriend painted the blood on the door. So he kind of had to go, but he was going to stay. He was one of those Hebrews that would rather stay than go. So there were people like that. But this idea of teshuva return is from almost the very beginning. We are to return to what? To God's house. Well, what's God's house on earth? The temple. Until Yeshua came and then he was the temple. So uh, you think of the prodigal son. You want to talk about the New Testament. What? What's the story of the prodigal son? You've got two sons and the father. One son wants all his money, leaves, lives riotously, and then comes back. But the other son stayed there the whole time. So when the the prodigal comes back, the son that had been there was mad. And the master of the house says, don't worry. You know, everything I have is yours. But, but, But our son who is lost, your brother, is back. So you've got the house of Judah, who are the Jews that stayed with the master that returned from Babylon and and keep all the laws and the rules and all that stuff. And they're pretty crusty. And they didn't like that the temple, the house of Israel, which is the prodigal, who left. But at the end, the prodigal comes back and the two are reunited. And the house of Judah was not that thrilled about it. It's the same thing. It's, it's, It's teshuva. Okay, so the, the blood, of, temp, the blood of, of God cleanses the temple so that we can be at one with him and live there. And that's, remember, Bereshit 1.1, that's the first word of scripture. Um, so again, did the, did the blood forgive our sins? No, it made it possible for us to have our sins forgiven if we were willing to go if they were willing to leave Egypt, if we were willing to go in and and seek God and ask for forgiveness, then absolutely it was ours. Um, It does. Exactly. And that's the people who chose not to leave Egypt. They didn't have the faith to go. They wanted to stay, you know, where life was good. They were merely slaves, right? Um, Okay, so he wants us to return and I would suggest what we're returning to is, is the old ways. Well, what, you know, what are the old ways? And that obviously um, we could talk about for months, but let me go to Yeramahu. Uh, Yeramahu. Yura, 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 
Jeremiah. Yeramahu? Yeramahu? Somebody? I don't know. I can barely speak English. I can't really do Hebrew. Okay, starting in chapter 6, verse 15, it begins this way. Were they ashamed when they had committed abominations? Nay, they were not all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore, they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith Yahuwah. Thus saith Yahuwah, stand ye in thy ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good ways, and walk therein, and ye shall first find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. Also I sent watchmen over you, saying, hearken unto the sound of the shofar. But they said, we will not hearken. Therefore, ye nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor my Torah, but rejected it. And again, that's, that's where we are today. The Bible says, obey my commandments, walk in my ways, seek after the good ways, seek after the old ways, seek after the uh, antique paths, the old paths, go east. It says this a hundred different ways. And those were the words that the disciples used when they were talking to whoever they were talking to. They went out and talked to the house of Israel, right? The ones that were scattered among the nations. And what did they say? They said these things. They used these words because there was nothing else. This is the word of God. There was no New Testament at that time. It wouldn't be for, you know, 50 years after most of them had died. So they clearly were not talking about that. They were talking about this. And all through um, the Tanakh, you find this concept of going eastward, of finding the old ways, of walking the old path, of the ramparts, the circular, you know, wherever you start is where you end. The end will look like the beginning. There's, you know, there are hundreds of verses, and that's what they knew to be true. So he was saying, you know, seek, after, seek the old ways and the good, the good ways and, and the old paths. Um, and what, is, what are the old paths and the old ways and heading east tell you? That the blood of the offering, of, this, of the sin offering, is to cleanse the temple, not to cleanse you. And we can twist that. And I mean, it's, it's, it cleanses the temple so that we have access to be saved. When you, when you talk about the flood, I, I, I look back and there's a Passover and then there's thinking about the Last Supper where Christ talks about the body and the blood. What, there seems, what's your, I'm saying this quickly, you seem to think that you're saying that there's a distinction between the blood of Christ and the blood at Passover? No, there's no distinction. The Passover was just predictive of what Yeshua would do on the cross. So then what, what does the Last Supper represent? The Last Supper. When you, when you, when you take this yeah. bread, when you take this cup, isn't the cup representative well, of his blood? It is. But you're saying that is only to 
Well, no, I'm not saying it. That's what the Bible no, no, says. I, I, <laughs> yeah. That's what you're saying. Right. You're and, and, and the reason is, I think, be, because if the temple is clean and available to you, then you can use it. But you don't have to use it. If you're unwilling to go, like Dathan was, or Korah, or, or whoever it is, the blood's still there and it's cleansed the temple, but if you don't want to use it, you know, you don't have to use it. If it was the blood of Yeshua that saved you from your sins, then everyone would be saved. You could act any way you want. You wouldn't have to go to the temple. You wouldn't have to seek forgiveness. You wouldn't have to have faith. Pardon me? Right. But if the blood is what saves everybody, everybody would be saved. Because the blood was shed, right? You see what I'm saying? There has to be an action on your part. So the blood cleanses the temple so that when you choose to seek God, it's available to you. The blood itself doesn't cleanse you from your sins. You have to make the commitment, have the faith, make the effort. And then, then it's available to you. But previously, it wouldn't have been available because the temple had been defiled. So there was no way for you to be saved until the temple was cleansed. And it's the, the blood. And in, in, you know, before the Messiah came and, and shed his blood, there had to be a blood sacrifice to cleanse the temple. But once Messiah came and shed his blood, there no longer had to be to cleanse the temple because the temple was clean. It was him. But so you have to come to him. Before Yeshua, you had to go to the temple to meet with God because that's where he lived. He, he, he had Moshe build him a house. He came down and dwelled in the holy of the holy place until it was defiled by us. We broke the covenant, which is why when you talk about the new covenant, you read the new covenant. It's not new. It's kadosh it's it's renewed it had to be renewed or rebuilt or restored which is kadosh because we broke it and he was willing to do that it's the same picture that you see when moshe goes up the mountain he comes down the people are in sin he breaks the tables of stone the lord's ready to get rid of them he goes up there and makes intercession for the people and he he responds and provides an avenue for their restoration. It's the same picture over and over and over. It's you're walking around the ramparts of the city and you'll see the, the gate, walk all the way around, you get to the gate again, all the way around, you get to the gate again. All your life, there's a million different events that happen, a million different people you'll meet, a million different things going on. But it's always the same message. And you always wind up right back where you started. And that's the message of scripture. So you see the picture from beginning to end. It's always the same picture. You see it in Genesis. You see it in Exodus. You see it all the way to Revelation. And it's always this picture of the Messiah. And part of that picture is, um, is the blood is cleansing the temple to give us access if we choose to. Yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. In those days, because the Messiah hadn't come, there was a physical temple. 
It was just a picture of the Messiah to come. And then when the Messiah spilled his blood, the veil ripped. The temple was now open because he was the temple and it was accessible to all. But still, if you don't come to him, if you don't choose to follow him, if you don't have any faith to do that, you're not saved. But in any case, it doesn't have anything to do with the blood. Um, let me let me um, let me read this by um, chapter five, verse 10 through 12. And this is chapter five is this section that's in the whole chapter is is telling you about the blood sacrifice and the offerings and all of that stuff. So right in the middle of this, it says, and he shall offer the second for a burnt offering. According to the manner, the priest shall make an atonement for him for his sin. So this is a sin offering which he hath sinned, and it shall be forgiven him. But if he be not be able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, and that he sinned, uh, then that he sinned shall bring his offering a tenth part of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. And he shall put no oil upon it, neither shall he put any frankincense thereof, for it is a sin offering. Then they shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it as mentioned thereof and burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire unto Yahuwah. It is a sin offering. No blood. It was a grain offering. So if, 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 it, if the blood is what saves us from our sin, it's what cleanses us from our sin, then how did this guy have his sins forgiven without blood? Um, Jonah, Jonah 3.10, it says, and Elohim saw their works, their works being the Ninevites, that they turned from their evil way. And Elohim repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did not. So the Ninevites repented of their sin and were forgiven. There was no blood offering there. It was their actions that caused the Lord to forgive their sins. Uh, you know, you can see that all through scripture. There's, there's enough pictures that you can have your sin forgiven without a blood offering to know that a, a blood offering is not required for your sin. So what's the blood offering for? Well, we just read it in a couple of verses. It's to cleanse the temple so that we could come to it and be saved. And maybe it's, it's a fine line. Because without the shedding of blood, the temple would not be cleansed and we could not be saved. So if you just cut out the middleman, the shedding of blood causes us to be able to be saved. But the shedding of blood does not save us. Otherwise, everyone would be saved. And there would be no point in church or the Bible or knowing anything or having any faith. Well, like most Christians. There'd be no sense in any of that because the fact that he shed his blood would have provided for us. And we know that's not true. So why did he shed his blood? If it didn't wash away our sin and provide for our salvation, that seems like a waste. Well, it had to happen to clean the temple, to make it available to us, to come to him, to receive his mercy and be saved. The veil was ripped, right? Right. Well, there's, 
16 different offerings for different things, but yeah, and they all have different names and you give different, different things. But yeah, none of that would work if, if we couldn't approach God. You know, it, it, you can't just go out and, you know, well, and we saw what happened. You go out and you make a, a golden calf in your backyard. You can't just go offer to that. You need to offer at the temple. Well, now the Messiah has come and died. We need to make our offering to him. Well, how do you do that? You do it the same way they did in the temple. You go to him and you say with your heart, this is, this is what I need. This is what I want. Help me. It's the same thing. It's faith. Now there's no temple. And I mean, it, that's, again, you know, that goes back to the, why were all those people scattered across the then known world? The 10 tribes are scattered across. They were sown, they were planted so that the whole world would then know. So what good would a temple in Jerusalem do if all of the people didn't live in Jerusalem? It wouldn't do any good. So you have to have a way to make an offering and be saved all over the whole world. Well, that can't happen at a temple. So how does that work? Well, it works the same way through the blood of the Messiah who has cleansed the temple. He has become the temple and he's now available to all of us, but it's the same process. We still have to go to him. You know, when they were walking through the desert, he lived in the box in the middle and they could come to him. They all lived right there. Okay, well, that's easy. But now they're scattered all over the world. Well, the temple wouldn't work anymore. So we needed a better temple. All right, let's, uh, let's see. Vaikra 16, starting in verse 29. And this shall be a statute forever. So how long? How long is forever? Forever. So that means next week it's done. Well, it could be. <laughs> okay, and this should be a statute forever unto you that in the seventh month on the 10th day of the month that you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be uh, one of your own country or a stranger that sojourn among you. On that day, the priest shall make an atonement for you to cleanse you that you may clean, be clean from all your sins before Yahuwah. So this happens at the temple. It shall be a Sabbath of rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls by statute forever. So the, the Torah, the Tanakh, the book that all of the disciples knew to be true, the book that they based their entire life and actions on, says forever and that word is alam and it means um uh, it means a far distant light so forever means forever until it's over so when, when that light is gone then you're it's cleansed of it but that light won't go until the lord flips the switch right? It's at the end of days, it will be done. But for us, it's forever. For everybody who's ever lived, it's been forever. It's certainly been their lifetime. 
So it shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and that's Yom Kippur. To afflict your souls by statute forever. So you, you know what afflict your souls means, right? And you've all got the cat of nine tails so you can whip your back, yeah? Like they used to do. Okay, good. You've all got that. So I want you to spend the whole day flagellating yourself with your cat of nine tails because that's what it means. What about the fasting? No, 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 no. Fasting. <laughs> it says, is, afflict your souls. It's a key component of Yom Kippur, right? It says it numerous times. You have to afflict yourselves. And when you look at what the words mean, um, Ana, and actually it, when used in the sentence of Yom Kippur, it's Ana, Aleph Tav, Nefesh. So this has an Aleph Tav right in the middle of it. So you know it's something you need to pay attention to. Ana means to look down or depress. Uh, and of course, nefesh is, nefesh is your soul or appetite. So you're, to look down on your soul or appetite is literally what it means. A lot of people translate this as fasting. You know, you're to, you're, you're to afflict your soul, you're to fast. And you can, I mean, it, you know, you can get that. I mean, that's completely legitimate. You could call this a fast and it would be perfectly fine. And it's used that way um, many times. But you think about uh, depressing your appetite. It doesn't say anything about food specifically. It says depress your appetite. That's what the word means. So... That kind of leaves it wide open. It doesn't necessarily have to be food. I mean, what, what appetites do you have? I, I don't want to know. Don't raise your hands. I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to get any notes or emails. But, you know, I mean, in between your two, your two ears, you think about, yeah, your appetites. And maybe you need to depress them. You know, I'm just saying, okay, just saying. Um, but interestingly enough, the, the Bible actually tells you what the Lord thinks um, this means. This, this term, anah nefesh, is, happens, you know, there's fairly regular in Scripture. I want to read you uh, Yeshenyahu, Isaiah chapter 58. And it goes like this. Raise your voice like a shofar. Proclaim to my people what rebels they are. Okay, I do that a lot. The house of Yaakov, to the house of Yaakov, their sins. Now remember, we are the house of Yaakov, of Jacob, of Ephraim, of Israel. Um, oh yes, they seek me day after day. And, and by the way, this is the Jewish contemporary I think it's the one you're reading, actually. The Jewish Contemporary Bible or the, something like that. Oh, yes, they seek me day after day and claim to delight in knowing my ways. As if they were an upright nation and had not abandoned the rulings of their God. They ask me for just rulings and claim to take pleasure in closeness to God. Asking, why should we fast if you don't see? Why mortify yourselves if you don't notice? Here is my answer. When you fast, you go about doing whatever you like and while keeping your laborers hard at work. Your fasts lead to quarreling and fighting and lashing out with violent blows. 
On a day like today, fasting like yours will not make your voice heard on high. Is this the sort of fast I want? A day when a person mortifies himself? Is the object to hang your head like a reed and spray, spread sackcloth and ashes under yourself? Is this what you call a fast? A day that pleases Adonai? Here is the sort of fast I want. Releasing those unjustly bound, untying the thongs of the yoke, letting the oppressed go free, breaking every yoke, sharing your food with the hungry, taking the homeless poor into your home, clothing the naked when you see them, fulfilling your duty to your kinsmen. Then your light will burst forth like the morning. Your new skin will go quickly over your wound. Your righteousness will precede you and Adonai's glory will follow you. Then you will call and Adonai will answer and you will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, stop false accusations and slander. Generously offer food to the hungry and meet the needs of the person in trouble. Then your light will rise in the darkness. Your gloom become like noon. Adonai will always guide you. He will satisfy your needs in the desert. He will renew the strength in your limbs so that you will be like a watered garden, like a spring whose water never fails. You will rebuild the ancient ruins, raise the foundation from ages past, and be called the repairer of broken walls, the restorer of streets to live in. If you hold back your foot on Shabbat from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call Shabbat a delight, Adonai's holy day worth honoring, then honor it by not doing your usual things or pursuing your interests or speaking about them. If you do it, you will find delight in Adonai. I will make you ride on the heights of the land and feed you with the heritage of your ancestor Yaakov. And from the mouth of Adonai has spoken. That's what the Lord thinks afflicting your soul is. I didn't see anything in here about uh, not eating or not drinking or depressing your appetite or any of that stuff. What I saw was the actions of someone who knows the commands of the Lord, who lives that way. So we talk about a fast, afflicting your soul, we should fast for Yom Kippur. Okay, fine, fast, awesome. You know, I'm not going to say don't fast. Fasting is a good thing. But I am going to tell you that when he talks about a fast, he talks about living this way, living the way that he prescribes, following his commandments, his instructions, his statutes, and not just on Yom Kippur or a holy day, but every day. And did you, did you, did you catch this? Um, it's keeping, keeping the Sabbath, releasing the unjustly bound, freeing the oppressed, sharing food with the hungry, bringing the homeless into your home, clothing the naked, fulfilling our duty to our brothers. And what happens? We will be like a watered garden, bright as high noon. We'll have renewed strength. Our wounds will heal fast. We'll rebuild the ancient foundations and all of that stuff. Is that how you want to live? I mean, do you want those things in your life? Then what he's saying is you should afflict your souls every day not just on Yom Kippur, and you afflict your soul by doing the things that I ask you to do. And why does that afflict your soul? Because the world is telling you not to. It's telling you to do something different. Oh, you've got to make money. You've got to be productive. You've got to, you know, whatever it is. 
the world will, anything the world tells you, you know, is a lie. So you should do immediately the opposite of whatever the world or the politicians or the commercials or the TV shows tell you. You should do these things. Well, how did the disciples know to do these things? This is the way they lived. I mean, how many times did you see Peter or Paul, you know, giving alms to the poor, clothing the naked, uh, doing all of these things? That's what they did. That's how they lived. How did they know to live that way? Because it's not instinctual among humans. And the world tells you not to live that way. You can't live for other people. You need to live for yourself. You know, you need to get right with yourself. You need to spend time with yourself. You need to find who you are. Really, read the Bible. It's kind of the opposite of that. Nobody cares who you are. They want you to deal with the things that the Lord would have you to deal with. There are people all around us, neighbors, friends, people at the grocery store, whatever it is. I mean, in my case, it's kind of cool because I get to go to many different houses every day and get to talk to people. And sometimes they're a little offended. <laughs> and then like the other day, I had this long discussion with a customer mine and we were talking about uh, the feasts and, you know, and all this stuff. And, and I was telling her stuff she didn't know. And she was telling me stuff and, you know, she was late for lunch actually, cause we were chatting and she rushed, rushed off to um, meet these people at lunch and she was sharing obviously what we talked about because so they know you like i don't know who they are i don't know if that's good but you might know them i'll pull up i don't remember their name <laughs> i'm not that good with names um and then she sends me an email back thanking me for the discussion and she's talking about the four ways to interpret scripture, which I've talked about numerous times with you. And I bet there's not one, not even you that know the four ways. Do you guys, do any of you know the four ways? The, the Darash, the uh, Sod, the uh, Ramez, the, um, I can't even think of the fourth one now. Um, there's four different ways you can, <laughs> it's in your notes, I'm sure. Um, Darash, Ramez, Sod, and Peshat. And Peshat is just, you know, it's just, what it says i mean it just you know just take it face value is peshat and then the sod is uh the, the the jews have a saying when the wine goes in the sod comes out because it's the secret the mystery stuff and then the remez remez is actually a current word in hebrew for a stoplight the remez has you know different options different ways you can look at it and the and the darash is is a is a like a homiletical teaching or you know but there's always for it anyway she knew that I didn't tell her that she knew that. So you just never know, you know, what, what the Lord's going to do. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't have anything to do with you or food or. Right. And that was his point is these people who are fasting and sitting on sackcloth and ashes, they're always getting fights with other people, you know, I'm holier than you or you're out doing something and I'm not. That is never the intent of any of this stuff. The intent is always to live exactly as he described right there. Um, okay, so we've, we've, uh, we've always been taught that the lamb, you know, the innocent lamb sheds his blood. 
And that covers our sin, sort of like a get out of jail free card. Doesn't matter what we do, what we think, as long as his blood covers us, we're good. And I would suggest that's not true. His, his, his blood makes it possible for us to approach him and be saved. Um, we've been taught fasting means no food to teach us about suffering. And I, I would say that's uh, not completely true. He doesn't want us to just, you know, and again, I'm not saying don't fast. I'm saying that's not what he wants. He wants us to live that way every day. He wants us to live in the way he would have us uh, to do. The rabbis of old thought they were saved because they were descended from Avraham. That's not true. They were descended because the blood of the lamb cleansed the temple and they could approach God. They weren't saved because they knew the guy who knew the guy who knew God. And so many, you know, I mean, okay, let me read uh, from Luke chapter one, verse 68 and 69. It said, blessed be Elohim of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. And he hath raised up the horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Blessed be Yahuwah Elohim of Yisrael. Those are his people, right? And we've talked about this a hundred thousand times. He has come. Well, here. Matthew 15, 24. But he answered and said, am I not sent only or but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Acts 5, 30, 31. The Elohim of our fathers raised up Yeshua, whom you slew and hung on a tree. Him hath Elohim exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to who? Israel and forgiveness of sins. Do you see the church in there anywhere? Is there any other group? It's always Israel. It's only Israel. There's no such thing as the church. We get the church from the Greek word ecclesia, and ecclesia just means a group of people. So when you're standing at line at City Market, that's an ecclesia. And if there's 10 people in nine, it's a mignon. It's a congregation. We, we have a mignon tonight. So this is a, a mignon, a congregation. What do you call it? Oh, what's oop-de-doo. It's a, it's a mignon, it's 10. I don't know. I always use mignon. But that just means 10. And if you have, you know, Ecclesia is a group of people. Okay. You could be in line at City Market, or it could be a Presbyterian church or whatever. But it's just a group of people. It doesn't mean anything other than a group of people. But a mignon is 10 people who are devoted to the Lord. But in any case, there's no such thing as a church. There's only the two houses, house of Israel, house of Jacob, or uh, Judah, house of Judah, house of Israel. He has come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, so the question is, how do you know how to become part of the house of Israel? I mean, that's kind of the key, right? He shed his blood to cleanse the temple, so you can go in and approach him. And he has only come for the house of Israel. So only the people who approach him that belong to the house of Israel could be saved. Well, that's distressing if you don't belong to the house of Israel. <clears throat> All right. Yahoo 7, uh, starting in 22. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day, and brought them out of the land of Egypt, concerning 
burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing I commanded them. So he's saying, I didn't talk to them about all the stuff, all the offerings and all the feasts and all the blah, 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 all the, he says he desires what? Obedience, not sacrifice. But this thing I commanded them saying, obey my voice and I will be your Elohim and ye shall be my people. And ye walk in the ways that I have commanded you that it may be well with you. Uh, yes, Yahoo, I, uh, Isaiah 56. Okay, let's just maybe end on this one. Uh, 56, 1 through 8. Thus saith Yahuwah, keep the judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my graciousness is to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, the son of the man that layeth hold on it that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and keepeth his hand from doing evil. So this goes back to what a fast is, right? Stop doing worldly stuff. Do what I say, you know, keep the Sabbath. Okay. Verse three, let, uh, let neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to Yahuwah speak saying, Yahuwah hath utterly separated me from his people, and neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith Yahuwah unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbath, and choose the things that please me. So again, you're, you're choosing to do this. And take hold of my covenant, his words. Even to them I will give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than the son's and of daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the son of the stranger that joins themselves to Yahuwah to serve him, which by the way is us, to love the name Yahuwah to, to be his servants. And everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my commandment, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for my house shall be called the house of prayer for all people. Yahuwah Elohim, which gathered the outskirts of Israel, the outcasts of Israel, which is us, which gathered the outcasts of Israel, say, yet I will gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. So he doesn't exclude anyone. You know, and there were all these rules in Judah about who can approach and who can, and eunuchs couldn't because they weren't whole, and, you know, uh, strangers couldn't because they weren't from the house of Judah. Uh, the house of Israel was completely banned because they didn't come back. There were all these millions of rules that, that the Jews made, the rabbis made. That's God didn't make those rules. And he's saying, no, this is not true. I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And if you want to be in the house of Israel, all you have to do is come, is join me, and you can be saved too. But it could only happen because the temple was clean. And the temple was clean because of the blood of the sacrifice. Okay, so he does not exclude any who hear and obey his words. Remember, he, he's talked, I don't know, six or eight times, just in the, some of the verses we've read about the Sabbath. If you don't keep the Sabbath, you can't be part of the house of Israel. Well, that's frightening. 
if you think that yeah how many churches do you know that worship on the on the wrong day all of them well when you read i mean all through this you have to keep his sabbath you have to keep his word you have to obey his commandments you go back and read isaiah 58 that chapter i read read that again read it a couple times and see what you need to do and see what the promises are because it's awesome and and it's not that hard <laughs> keeping his word is actually quite easy you know because it's doing it's just it's doing the right thing and you hear the president and all these people talk about doing the right thing when they talk about the right thing it's never the right thing it's always the wrong thing so if they say this is the right thing write it down and don't ever do that do exactly the opposite of what they say because what's right for the house of satan is not good for the house of israel um you know, and sometimes we kind of get the impression that God is angry at us because we're such giant losers. We already know we're giant losers, but he's not angry at us. He's brokenhearted because we, we can't see what's obvious to him. It's so easy for us to get into the house of Israel to be regathered and saved by him. And he tells us the thousand different ways how to join that club. And he's brokenhearted that we don't get it. So he talks about the renewed covenant, you know. Well, because we broke it, he had to repair it. And that's that word Kodesh or, or uh, uh, yeah, Kadash. And it means, uh, it can be new, you know. you uh, I don't know what would be new. You go out and you, you grab a tomato off the plant that's brand new. That would be... You, you buy a brand new car that's never been driven. That's new. That's the same word. But the word also means rebuilt, restored, repaired. And 10 to 1, that's how it's used in scripture. So when he says the new covenant, he means the repaired, the restored, the rebuilt covenant. It's the same covenant. When Moshe came down from the mountains, what was different about the tablets? Nothing. It was the same words, except this time Moshe had to cut the tablets. So the, ta the, the, the same words were written on Moshe's tablets. Because remember, the first ones God provided, he made. And then he broke them, so he had to go back up the mountain, and God said, first, bring up some tablets. So what's that picture? You know, these words are carved on Moshe's tablets in Moshe's heart. The renewed covenant are the exact same words, but they're, they're carved on our heart instead of on a stone tablet or a sapphire tablet, as it were. And that's the difference. So, all right, there we go.